1: AF is important to diagnose and treat as it can increase our risk of other conditions such as heart failure and stroke. AF is very common in Australia. It is estimated that more than half a million Australians are living with AF. Today we speak with Dr Katorna about diagnosing and managing atrial fibrillation. Dr Katorna is a cardiologist at St John of God Hospital in Subiaco who specialises in treating cardiac arrhythmias and catheter ablation. How many Australians are living with atrial fibrillation?
0: Yeah, look, AF, as we call it, is the commonest uh, rhythm abnormality. Uh, It occurs around 1% to 2% in the general population. Uh, But this is probably an underestimate uh, because a lot of patients with AF are asymptomatic. Um, It's strongly correlated with age. So if you look at a population of, say, less than 40 years old, less than half a percent or 0.1% have have got AF. But if you look at a population of 80-year-olds, probably greater than 13% would have AF. And I guess that's uh, quite relevant with an aging population Mm. it's becoming more and more common. Uh, It also affects more men than women as well.
1: So you can have atrial fibrillation and not yep. have symptoms.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's particularly relevant because one of the problems with AF is it increases your risk of stroke. And so if, if even if you're asymptomatic, uh, so that's particularly important. Generally, patients that are older... Uh, are less symptomatic. The patients that are younger and more active uh, are symptomatic. So, uh, yeah, that's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. So then how would you, if you were in that younger population, how would you then, you know, what are some triggers, for instance, or what things should we be aware of so we could maybe... Um, go and speak to a doctor if we might be worried that we could suffer from AF.
0: Yeah, I mean AF. One of the things that it it can uh, cause is increase your risk of death or heart mm. failure, uh, risk of stroke, and it does significantly uh, impinge on quality of life. So clearly, if you've got symptoms of palpitations or a racing heart. Breathlessness, reduced exercise capacity. Then you present to your GP. But one of the the symptoms is is sort of non-specific, so tiredness, fatigue, and lethargy. Mm. So that's pretty non-specific. So it's important that when it, when you see a GP, and if you're going for a script, that the GP feels your pulse, uh, and if it's irregular, then you may have AF, and then they do what's called a twelve lead ECG to diagnose it. Okay. Um, so generally, at a sort of a general GP check. Uh, it can be picked up.
1: Oh, fantastic. Is it genetic then?
0: Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, there's cert- it's certainly got a genetic uh, factor involved and in, in first degree relatives, if they have atrial fibrillation and you're less than 65, there is a link. Mm. Uh, but it is strongly correlated with lifestyle factors. So uh, obesity um, and overweight is a particular problem. So if you have that problem, that will increase your risk of AF. Mm. Um, if you drink too much alcohol, so you have a lot of binges. So holiday heart syndrome, it's called. So when people go away on holidays and they binge in alcohol, their risk of AF is significantly increased. So it does, and it's linked, it's correlated with diabetes, um, hypertension, underlying coronary artery disease uh, or structural heart disease. So there are a number of factors involved, but we don't have a, a specific genetic, test that we, uh, we, we test patients for.
1: Okay. So you could be asymptomatic on holiday, have a binge, and that could be your first... I suppose, awakening or experience of perhaps, oh, I could have underlying AF or I could have AF.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So why it happens to some people that binge and others, Mm. uh, we don't know. Um, But certainly the toxic effect of alcohol uh, can have that effect. But even alcohol taken over the longer term, you know, more than sort of the recommended two standards per day with a couple of days off will increase your risk as well.
1: Okay. So who's at risk? So you talked about an ageing population. Is there any other group of people that would be at risk of of having arrhythmias?
0: Yeah, so look, if anyone has heart surgery or general surgery, um, if you've got a chest infection or sort of lung disease or you've had a previous heart attack, so in other words, I guess if you've had a stressful event uh, on your body, that can increase your risk of AF. Thyroid disease, so that's really the gland in your neck that controls metabolism Mm. um, and heart rate. If you're thyrotoxic and don't know it, that can increase your risk of AF. If you develop a clot in your lung called a pulmonary embolus, that can increase your risk as well. So there are a number of sort of associated risk factors, but also in younger people that are otherwise fit and well and don't have any of those problems, they can have a little substrate called an SVT, supraventricular tachycardia, where it can degenerate into AF. So previously we sort of called that or labeled that lone AF, so normal heart, otherwise normal and well, but for some reason they have a focus of cells in the heart, in the top chamber of the heart that beats rapidly and irregularly and then triggers the atrial fibrillation. Hmm. So in other words, the the heart goes a bit haywire.
1: Okay. Yeah. And in terms of those that have suffered arrhythmias, yeah. um, we hear of people, famous sports people, who have an, who've suffered an irregular heartbeat, e.g. Lisa Curry's, you know, known to have a pacemaker. Yeah. Um, how do these very fit people have issues with their heart?
0: Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um at the extreme end of the exercise spectrum, those sort of endurance athletes, you know, particularly the marathon runners, the triathletes, cyclists and swimmers, so they're exercising at an extreme elite level mm. for long periods of time, um, high volumes of exercise. They, they do have an increased risk of developing rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation in particular. So when they're followed these patients, their risk is probably two to seven times uh, greater than the general population. That's not to say exercise is is not a good thing for you. So that's obviously So you can't the, ex- get
1: out of not exercising. No. No. <laughs> oh,
0: so exercise uh, moderate levels of exercise is really important for your overall cardiovascular health, for blood pressure, uh, for diabetes, reducing the risk of uh, you know, uh, obesity, sleep apnea, which is sort of a disordered um uh, breathing or obstructed breathing, which can increase your risk of AF. So exercise, uh, weight loss measures, uh, dietary modification are really, really important to reduce your risk of AF. But certain extreme levels of exercise and sport will increase your risk. So for those type of athletes, we generally say to them, you've really got to have a rest day or two. Uh, They obviously find that hard to do, Mm -hmm. um, but they really need to rest the heart because it's putting it under stress for long periods of time.
1: Okay. And what about... Young children that you hear of that have been are there sort of arrhythmias that can cause sudden death? you know you hear of these young soccer players in Europe that yeah. sadly have passed on yeah. the soccer field. Is yeah. that an underlying arrhythmia of some kind?
0: yeah that's that's a different type of arrhythmia it's it's an arrhythmia arising in the ventricle, which is the pump chamber, the main chamber that pumps the blood around the heart. And a lot of these young young sportsmen are totally asymptomatic until they have a lethal uh, event, which is particularly sad. So in, in younger populations, um, they can often have a structural abnormality in the heart muscle called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or they may have a structurally normal heart and there's a genetic abnormality in the transport of the ions across the, the cell membranes that cause it to contract. And they can include things like long QT syndrome and those sort of things. Um, there's often a fa- in those sort of patients. There's often a family history. Um, there may be a history of sudden unexplained death in young people or other family members. Um, patients, uh, people that have drowned uh, or sort of unexplained deaths. So, yeah.
1: Been- and so, if you were a parent and you were a bit concerned, say so you have a child that's mm. perhaps at state level or even you know aspiring to. A play at a very high level sport. Would it be something that maybe a parent should consider, like having an ECG or?
0: In some countries, in Italy, they do routine screening in those sort of people that are taking on elite or competitive sports. We don't here in Australia, uh, because you can pick up abnormalities and label someone as having a genetic abnormality when they don't. They're not at risk. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a controversial topic, but generally what you would recommend is um, on the basis of symptoms. So if someone had um, felt dizzy or faint or had chest pain or breathlessness or blacked out, particularly during uh, extreme exercise, that's a really a red flag or a warning sign They should be seen straight away, uh, particularly in the context of a family history as well of, of an abnormality.
1: And blacking out and those symptoms that you're talking about or the red flags, that would be the same red flags for an adult as well as a child that you would be concerned yeah
0: so uh chest pain breathlessness dizzy spells blackout um if you notice your exercise capacity is not quite as good as it was you you'd normally go for the run or the ride and you, you just just the battery is running a bit flat and you're not quite performing as well as you should. So, certainly, if you have any of those symptoms, you should um, seek assistance.
1: Yeah. And how is AF diagnosed? So, you're talking about a, is it a halter monitor or some kind so of? So, generally,
0: um, it can, if you feel someone's pulse, it's usually irregular but there can be lots of different causes of an irregular pulse. So the, the, the critical diagnostic test is just the simple 12-lit ECG. Mm-hmm. So little dots on your chest and we look at the heart from, from different angles and that'll diagnose AF. Um, patients um, that may be having a halter monitor, so that's really a leads attached to the chest and you wear a monitor for 24 hours, looking for your sort of your rhythm and rate spread mm-hmm. over that time. There may be a, a different indication for having that halter apart from AF, but it may be found coincidentally.
1: Okay. And what are the varying treatments available for arrhythmias?
0: Yeah. So generally, first of all, you say lifestyle measures. So weight loss, a graduated exercise program is particularly important in people with AF. Controlling other risk factors, so good diabetic control, good blood pressure control, uh, looking for other triggers, coronary artery disease uh, is particularly important. And then you can move on to medications. So there's different types of medications available to control the heart rate, but also the heart rhythm. They're they're reasonable, but not totally effective. Uh, In some patients that don't like taking tablets that have infrequent episodes of AF, we could approach. What's that? So that if you feel your heart fluttering or beating irregularly, you could take one or two tablets at that time, wait sort of four hours and see whether it goes away. So that's the pill in the pocket approach. Mm. Um, Another approach is cardioversion so that you can put these little paddles on the front and the back of the chest and give your heart a little jolt under light sedation uh, if someone's heart's going really fast and erratically, they're feeling dizzy and faint and you really have to get them into rhythm urgently. Uh, And finally, another measure is um, an ablation procedure. That's whereby we can go through the groin, the vein in the groin up to the heart we can cauterize those little triggers or substrates for the atrial fibrillation.
1: Mm. And yeah. so, sort of, turn off these electrical triggers that, and, and will it turn that off forever? <laughs>
0: yeah, so the, um, the indication for one of these ablations is sim- uh, symptoms of AF. So, you wouldn't do it in someone that had no symptoms at all. Mm. And usually, you would trial medications to try and control it first. Or if a patient has side effects or really doesn't want to have medications, uh, you could trial that procedure. And really what we do is we target what's called the pulmonary veins. So they're veins that come from the lung to the left side of the heart. And it's uh, in studies in Bordeaux, originally in France, they discovered that the rapid firing or trigger for the AF would often come from the pulmonary veins. So you cauterize a little ring around where the veins are to damage those cells so the electrical signal couldn't come out and and cause the AF. Um, The problem is in in some patients with AF, the trigger comes from elsewhere. Mm. Uh, In other patients, uh, particularly those that are overweight, for instance, the atrium's enlarged and they may have scar in the body of the atrium, so you have to do more ablation than just the pulmonary veins.
1: So sometimes they might need to be ablated more than once?
0: Yeah, so the, the success rates vary generally the younger person with a structurally normal heart with firing from the pulmonary veins does better than the older patient with a dilated atrium and some scars. So we generally quote the risk or the chance that you have to redo the procedures about one in three. Mm. So it's, a, it's relatively common that you have to redo it. But the benefits in terms of symptom control and quality of life are, um, are well known.
1: And do some people don't have to take medications after that? Yeah,
0: so generally blood thinners is, regardless of the success of the procedure, the indication for blood thinners depends on your risk of stroke, which is separate to the ablation. But in terms of antiarrhythmics or rate controlling medications, you can often stop those if, if you have a successful ablation. Occasionally you'll continue them.
1: Okay. And can you die from suffering an arrhythmia? I know we talked about long QT. Look, yeah. 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 Are there d- other conditions that perhaps
0: Yeah, look, different arrhythm most arrhythmias are, are benign. Um mm. and it's usually the association of a structural abnormality or a cardiomyopathy, which in other words an enlarged heart or a scarred heart from a previous heart attack that really poses the risk of the arrhythmia causing you to drop dead. Mm. Um in general, the dangerous rhythm problems come from the ventricle, the bottom bottom part of the heart. But atrial fibrillation, for example, if you have a really fast, uncontrolled heart rate for weeks or months, that can cause the heart muscle to get tired and weak and increase your risk of heart failure, increase your risk of stroke and potentially a dangerous uh, rhythm problem.
1: Okay. So it's important to get on top of it. It's one of those conditions we should really try and manage.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's important to get on top of it early to prevent sort of structural damage and change to your heart, which is usually reversible if you get on top of it early.
1: And are there ways that we can prevent suffering atrial fibrillation apart from obviously living a healthy lifestyle, trying to reduce <laughs> alcohol, all these things are often sadly in society we're not doing. So that's often, and we're living longer, so we're aging. Yeah. So sort of what are some other things that we might not have talked about that we could consider?
0: Yeah, look, it's it's difficult. I mean, there's certainly patients that develop AF where there's nothing they can
1: do, they could have do, done.
0: They could have done it. You know, whether it's a genetic uh, problem or they've got a little short circuit in the heart, so it's nothing environmental that they've done. Uh, we've talked about um, obesity, sleep apnea, uh, and those sort of things. Addressing those risk factors is important. Mm. Um, aging population is um, is a. Is a Problems, So the burden of AF will increase. You can't stop yourself getting older, mm. unfortunately. So it's really the lifestyle measures that are, is the key factor at prevention uh, yeah, at the moment. Yeah.
1: And in people that suffer, suffer sleep apnea, do you find that they, as you say, they're at more risk? So if they can manage their sleep apnea, so they get diagnosed, they go on a CPAP machine, yep. can that actually help their AF?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It uh, will make them feel better, more energetic. Um, it'll want them make, make to exercise more. Uh, but I've had certainly had patients that have had undiagnosed sleep apnea. We've treated the sleep apnea and they've come back and the atrial fibrillation has disappeared of its own accord or wow. with the assistance of medications when they've had it for much longer. So uh, a critical, critical, uh, critical management part. strategy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And that would be something that you would look at um, as a cardiologist when you do a consult with someone. You are ruling out sleep apnea. Yeah, you
0: you can get a good idea by the way the person looks in terms of you know whether they're overweight and their neck size. But asking symptoms of, you know, do they wake up feeling a bit tired and sluggish? Do they feel sort of sleepy and tired during the day? If they're sitting watching TV, do they nod off really quickly and easily Mm. and asking partners that are there, do they snore, do they sort of stop breathing and and make all those sort of gagging type noises Mm. at night, yeah.
1: Because I would imagine that a lot of people would just put it down to a sleep condition and not actually think that it's causing AF or vice versa.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, untreated or undiagnosed sleep apnea increases risk of a motor vehicle accident by about seven times, increases your risk of uh, hypertension, uh, and atrial fibrillation, so particularly important.
1: Yes, and the relationship to AF and stroke. So, what is that relationship?
0: The relationship is predominantly that your risk of stroke is significantly increased, and that risk depends on other factors. So, if you if your age is the predominant factor, so if you're over seventy five, your risk is much higher. If you've had a previous sort of mini stroke or stroke, your risk is much higher. If you're a diabetic you've got hypertension, if you've got coronary disease or vascular disease or heart failure, your risk is significantly increased. So the doctors, we often use this system called a CHADS2 VASC or a scoring system to try and uh, equate the risk of stroke. Uh, and then we give them a score. And usually if they've got a score of two or more, we would recommend they go on blood thinners. And the rationale for that is that the efficacy of preventing stroke is, is better than the risk of of um, bleeding complications from these uh, blood thinners. So it's a balance of risk and benefit.
1: And if someone's actually diagnosed, treated and managing their AF, have they got no reason to have a, a healthy long life living with AF? It's a very manageable condition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So by virtue of seeing a doctor and being under the microscope looking at your other sort of comorbidities, your underlying heart condition. We often do ultrasounds or echoes of the heart, managing your blood pressure and your other risk factors. If you're preventing your risk or reducing your risk of stroke by blood thinners, controlling the heart rate, then there's no reason you can't live with it. Absolutely.
1: Well, that's good to know. So there's, even if you're diagnosed, if you manage it well, you can live a long, happy life.
0: Absolutely. With AF. (laughs) Absolutely. And keep
1: ageing with your heart. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Katorna
1: for sharing his time and knowledge with us on MediTalk. And to learn more about Dr. Katorna, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and
0: thank you for listening.